We're good. Good morning. On a day like today and any other day, we can use some hope, can't we? Who can forget the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid? All right, I'm asking the wrong question. Most of you out there will not remember 1980. So the question is, have any of you read about the <laughs> Winter Olympics of 1980? Okay. Oh, I'm supposed to point over here? Am I doing the wrong? Ah. <laughs> exactly. That's the year that the United States men's hockey team, made up of college kids, considered to be the underdog at least, beat the heavily favored Soviet Union team made up of professionals who claimed to be amateurs. In a thrilling final of four to three, I was in this state of looking after three very little ones, six months to about three years. So I missed most of the game, but I will tell you, nothing was more thrilling. Americans were glued to their seats, cheering these young men on who were facing the greatest challenge of their young careers, even though there appeared to be no hope for them to even get one goal. Still, they made it all the way to the final and then won gold is still considered to be the biggest upset in sports history and garnered the team the gold medal. It was called the Miracle on Ice. At this time of year, we are going to focus, we are getting ready to focus on what appeared to be another underdog who brought a great upset in the world's history. Even though there appeared to be no hope of victory, the angel song said different and it was, they came to those who were searching for them. The angel song, there we go. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I find it comforting to note that a similar proclamation is being made now for those of us searching for and looking for the second coming. In Revelation 14, it says, Stand in awe of God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is the peace, the glory to God, and peace, goodwill to men, that we are all longing for. The question we've got to be sure of is, do we have that hope that a few of those had when they were looking for the coming king that first time? There were some that were looking, if you remember, from Luke 2, it said that so it was the angels, when the angels had gone away, that the shepherds said to one another, let us go now into to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. <coughs> and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. <coughs> All heaven was anxiously waiting for this announcement angels couldn't fathom the indifference that they found with the people who were called to communicate to the world the truth of his coming. He was coming to be with us, 
and indifference in the land of Israel kept them from watching for him. However, the heavenly visitors did find those who were looking and talking about the nearness of his coming. They were anxiously awaiting. And they will still find those who are anxiously waiting. Then it was that the shepherds who kept their flocks were discussing this soon event. It was to them that the proclamation was given, and they made haste to go see. What happened to the rest of Israel? It would seem that the captivity that they were in years before in Babylon did a good thing in that it deterred them from ever wanting to go into idolatry again. Excuse me. But it also forced them to do a focus on the obedience of the law without the motivation of love. Their motive had become selfish and became the means of attaining national greatness. They shut out the world. And that shutting out included shutting out the saving factor of God's grace. They desired the advent of the Messiah, but had no concept of his mission. They had studied the prophecies. And without, but without the spiritual insight, pride and selfish desires were the reasons. They overlooked the scriptures that point to the humiliation of Christ's first coming. Are these motivators that of the grace of God's salvation missing in Laodicea? Does it preach the law without the grace of God? Satan's plan to secure to himself the allegiance of even heavenly beings was crushed when instead of what he expected, God to destroy the rebellious world, God sent his son to save it at the perfect time. When Satan seemed to have the victory, the Son of God came as that underdog and defeated him. He came as Emmanuel, God with us. I'm pretty sure that the, the shepherds were studying the book of Isaiah because the angels alluded to it when they um, said that for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. It was probably the same, pa thank you, it was probably the same passages of scripture that many others had studied, but never noticed the real purpose. What was the purpose of coming? They missed it, and Jesus, when he came, had to declare it fairly plainly in John 12, 27, when he said, now my soul is troubled, which probably should be interpreted horrified by the sin that was to be placed on him. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came. Billy Graham caught it, and I was glad I found his quote. The very purpose of Christ's coming into the world was that he might offer up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of men. He came to die. This is the heart of Christmas. And I hope as we go through this Christmas season, I will never forget 
the heart of Christmas. God sent his angels to proclaim the birth so that we could see that the heart of Christmas is that he would die to save humanity. Since it was his purpose to save men, and that required dying, what were the scriptures the Jews missed, and others? There were several, of course, that we could look at, all of them in Micah, there's many in Jeremiah, the Psalms, Zechariah, probably even Malachi. But most likely, the major scriptures they missed were from the book of Isaiah. There are five songs recorded in um, the book of Isaiah regarding the servant of the Lord. One in Isaiah 42, one in Isaiah 49, one in Isaiah 50, one in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. These poems present the work of Jesus that he began with his public ministry. And the passage from Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, um, is the one that Jesus declared, if you remember, when he was reading the scriptures when he was in Nazareth. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those oppressed, and to preach and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the song that best describes the purpose of why Jesus came to Bethlehem so long ago is found in Isaiah 52, verses, verse 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. It probably more than any other in the Old Testament, um, Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, giving unquestionable evidence of its fulfillment in Christ and the first Christmas. Let's turn there now as we look through this passage in Isaiah 52, 13. The song can be symmetrically structured. Ooh, I got through that word. Good for me. I, the first one is the riddle. The next part of the song is the rejection. The third part of the song is the atonement. The fourth part is his submission. And the last, his exaltation. So let's look at these parts and dissect them just a little bit today. I am reading here from the New Living Translation, so it might not be quite the same as what you've got in your Bible. But it says, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. <coughs> okay. I'm not doing a very good job at this. Oh, and he will cleanse many nations. Those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. The riddle is that because this servant is wise and highly exalted on one hand, on the other hand, he's disfigured, abhorred by others, marred. How could anyone, let alone the creator, the giver of life, die and be so marred that he was unrecognizable. His humiliation and suffering to the exaltation would 
elicit the amazement and respect of even kings. It is a fact that few people that Jesus came to save recognized him and his purpose. There are several places in the scripture where Christ attempted to explain his purpose to his followers. Even those closest to him heard his teaching but struggled so much to understand this purpose. One of those passages is found in Luke 18, where he, he's talking to his 12 disciples, and he takes them aside. He says, listen, we are going to go to Jerusalem, where everybody, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Pretty plain language. But they did not understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. To them, the riddle remained. Jesus was born to die. He lived to die. But because they misunderstood Bible teaching, they could not see in the marred face of Jesus, their Savior their preconceived ideas of who Jesus was so that even his continual teaching did not break through the cloud of their understanding. So the riddle remained. And it's a riddle that I need to solve before the coming of my Lord in the clouds, as found in Revelation 14, where Jesus again attempts to get the attention of his people focused on him and his work of salvation is coming out of Babylon to worship him, the true God, too much of a riddle that would keep me from the warning to watch and make ready to meet him. Time for lukewarm Laodicea to solve the riddle and proclaim the salvation of their God is at hand. As in Isaiah 61, heal the brokenhearted, preach and live the gospel to the poor, set at liberty Satan's captives, and proclaim Jesus, the Savior of the world. The next section of our, of our um, song is about the rejection. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. Okay. There was, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Well, it didn't go on to the next one. The rejection, as noted in this passage from Isaiah 53, 1-3, was very prominent in Jesus' life, particularly from the Jews, which often refer to the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Some of those who rejected him were, number one, the chief priests and Pharisees. According to John 11, um, they gathered a council and said, what shall we do? This man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, 
everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They rejected Jesus because they were afraid of losing their high exalted position. They didn't want to lose their honor. They were selfish to the core. And even after the crowning evidence of by God to men in the resurrection of Lazarus that demonstrated without a doubt that Jesus was sent into the world to save it, they just wouldn't believe no matter what. And so they rejected the obvious. The second group was they all, referring to the disciples. Mark tells us, for they all forsook him and fled. Matthew says pretty much the same thing in, in chapter 26, but he defines that they all meant his disciples who forsook him and fled. The disciples were terrified as they saw Jesus permit himself to be taken and bound. They didn't understand why, and it didn't make any sense to them. Why would, they, why would he permit the mob to take him away? And at Peter's suggestion that they save themselves, they all forsook him and fled. We understand that this m rejection was again motivated by fear, fear of what men could do to them. Huh, that's an interesting concept as I approach the second coming. The third rejection was the multitude. After Pilate had been conversing with the multitude several times in Luke 23, he asks them, why should I crucify Jesus? What evil did he do? They, the multitude, were insistent, demanding with loud voices, let him be crucified. Obviously, this was peer pressure. And Satan was behind instigating the response. But still, the multitude hated his example of piety, and when push came to shove, they banded together because they really were kind of afraid what somebody else would think of them if they didn't join the crowd. They ended up saying, we have no king but Caesar, and the people rejected God as their king, who is my king. The Pharisees were afraid of losing their position. The disciples were afraid of men. And the multitude was afraid of the opinion of others. There was one other one that seemed to be a rejecting him. I don't know if I'm not doing this right. Finally, he was rejected by God. The cry of Jesus as he was on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feared that sin was so obnoxious to God that their separation would be eternal and God could not reveal himself. Make no mistake, God had not rejected Jesus. He had not forsaken him. Rather, the th thick darkness surrounding that hid his presence. The father was with the son, but his presence was not known. To Jesus, at that moment, 
God had rejected him. He had been rejected. However, there was one who did not reject the Son of God, one who had heard Jesus teach and had been led to want to know more, but had been led astray by priests, rulers, peers, whoever. He found himself traveling deeper and deeper into sin. To this one, Jesus' demeanor during the trial stood out in a marked contrast to what he had heard and what he had been told. The long hours of agony, mockery, and rejection that this one saw had so discouraged our Savior. Then as he listened longingly for some expression of faith from his disciples, he only heard doubt and confusion. Can you imagine how grateful the Savior must have been at the utterance of a little bit of faith and love from the dying thief? The reason he had come was accomplished in part. When he uttered, today I say to you, I think I went too far. Ah, thank you back there. Um, the reason he'd come was accomplished in part when he uttered, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. That promise continues, for God so loved that he gave. For all ages, he gave his son, Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, that we may have eternal life. I love the quote that I found in Ministry of Healing. If but one soul would have accepted the gospel of his grace, Christ would have to save that one, have chosen his life of toil and humiliation and his death of shame. This one that did not reject had to have been a major encouragement to Jesus as he hung on the cross. Now the question that you must ask yourself do you want to bring that much joy to Jesus? And are you ready to ask Jesus to remember you? The next segment of our um, poem is the atonement. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, oops, I went too much. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. These verses reveal the reason for his suffering. This righteous servant was smitten for his, was not smitten, excuse me, for his own sin. But it was because of our rebellion and sin. All of us have strayed and left our God's path to follow our own. Christ's death and uh, his substitutionary death is the central truth of the cosmic dimensions. The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cl cluster. 
in order to rightly be understood, every truth in the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, must be studied in light of the cross. That is the grand and profound statement that adds teeth to the message of the whole Word of God. It is the reason for our new song declared in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength and honor, glory and blessings. Amen. When this truth reaches all the way to my DNA, that's when, like those 24 elders of Revelation 4, I fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, throwing my crown at his feet, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Truly, truly, the atonement of Jesus was perfect. When the Father beheld the sacrifice of his Son, he bowed down before it in recognition of its perfection. It is enough, he said. The atonement is complete. Jesus became sin and a curse for us that we may live, and that perfect atonement was made. What Jesus accomplished on that cross nearly 2,000 years ago is now to be applied and actualized, incorporated into our lives. Thus we are restored to God's image and to have abundant life. So this atonement did not end at the cross or even at the resurrection. Jesus, as our mediator and intercessor, is continuing his saving activity for us. For those of us who strayed, and left God's path to follow our own. The ascended Christ is making available to all the benefits of his atoning sacrifice. Sorry, that led me. I have a few questions now that I wouldn't mind, I would like to have you discuss. There we go. Wow. The questions when we get to them back again. What is my part in being available? Christ is ascended Christ made available all his benefits. What's my part? And from what our text is talking about, what is revealed in the benefits of that atonement? As you discuss this, I just want you to keep one thing in, mi re in mind. Remember KISS. Keep it simple, Sharon. Okay? Don't make this too complicated, but discuss what your part is in being available and what um, is revealed that we've just looked at in these texts about this atonement. Okay, it sounds like we're just getting started, but <laughs> are there a few of you who wouldn't mind sharing what you came up with at your table? If you're so, raise your hand. Ty will bring a mic around and we can know what some of this is, how some of this is revealed. I can't see real well with the light in my eye, but is there nobody that wants to share? I'll share. I was waiting. I, you know I have no problem talking, Sharon. <laughs> um, 
what is my part in being available? I, we were discussing to understand God speaking to you and being open to the Holy Spirit nudging you. So often we have all these excuses of I'm too busy or somebody else will take care of that. And so our part is being open to the Holy Spirit's leading and talking and acknowledgement and then stepping in faith in that nudge and in that talking. And then what is revealed from the benefit of atonement, we said, was freedom. Because through the process of atonement, you acknowledge your sins, you ask for forgiveness, and then you surrender to God. So that opens up complete freedom in whatever you're dealing with because now it's been given over to God and God's going to deal with it. Good points. Somebody else have anything to add to that? Okay. Oh, over here we got one. Thank you. I like to think that um, atonement is, if you break it down, is at one meant, which if you love something fully and completely, you want to become one with that thing. And if you choose, because this is where we come in, we get to choose what we love. And if you choose to love God because that would have, even if you didn't know anything, one way or the other about whether God is or God isn't, choosing God would have the absolute best outcome of any other choice that you could make. So you pick that choice and you decide, I'm going to love that and becoming one with that the at one takes you down the path for the rest of your whole life in everything that you do. Very good. I think I've got a hand way back there. That'll be the last one, and then we'll move on to the next section. Um, when I look at the word atonement and what's in it for me, I'm think on thinking of the benefit. And lots of time, we, we do not look at the benefit that come with the atonement. It's undeserving. Things we get, we get grace that we did not deserve. Sometimes we don't stop to thank God for the roof over our head. We don't stop to thank God. We eat and we not even pray. It is what he has done for us, the benefit of the atonement. It's why we are here today. Unmerited favor, grace. That's why we are here today. Amen. Amen. These all fit very well with what I had read um, after this that I found where the cross reveals God's incomprehensible love for sinners, his justice, his truth, the splendor of his holy character, the immutability of his law, the abhorrent nature of sin, safety in his government, victory over sin, Who's who in the great controversy? And Christ's definitive victory over Satan and the forces of evil, all done for my benefit. Um, very good points. The next section of this song that we're looking at right now in Isaiah reveals his submission. I don't think this thing worked. Oh, I probably took it too far. He was oppressed and treated harshly, but he never said a word. He was led like a lamb 
to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, or that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. These texts describe Jesus' suffering, trial, death, and burial. And the detail that is given here so many hundred years before it actually happened is almost a surprise. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine that that much detail would have been given so long before it actually happened. The servant's silence notice here anticipates that the Lord has an intervention which is discussed in the final section of the poem. But it also intensifies the fact that Jesus had, on many times, attempted to get their attention. And not even after the resurrection of that dead person, that had not reached their mouths, or their, excuse me, had not reached their hearts. So what was left for Jesus to do but be silent at his, at the cross? Nothing he could have said would have brought salvation any closer to their hearts. The Hebrew word that he died without descendants could also be translated as plight. Thus it brings into the passage this meaning that who would consider his plight? There is also the contrast that his life was cut short in the land or on the earth because of the rebellion of his people. So that even though he was considered a criminal and buried as a criminal, which in Jewish thinking was probably the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone, yet he was put in a rich man's grave after such a violent death, it reveals innocence. There's a lot in this poem. When you look into it a little deeper, Christ's submission to this treatment and shame makes possible my salvation. And as you discussed, you realize that he took all that was he took all that on so that I don't have to. I don't have to face it. There were no words that can further express the magnitude of what he did for me, and it's time for me to be silent and just say thanks for adopting me as a child of God. Praise and honor and blessing belong to the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. I'd like you to take a moment now and just among yourselves, talk for a minute about the fact that Jesus made possible your salvation. This is a time for your testimony. I can't get this to move. Thank you. So take a minute and just discuss among yourselves. We're not going to ask you to share anything further than just among yourselves. But take a minute and, and just let each other know a little bit of how did Jesus actually save you? What what magnificent thing happened or what insignificant thing happened in your life that made you do an about face? Okay, I really hate to cough, stop this. I don't think there's anything in this world that brings 
our Savior more happiness than to hear what he's just heard from all of you just now. And I think it also tells me that maybe we need a service where we do nothing but this. I think we were all cut too short, and it would be a good plan somewhere down the line. I'd like to finish up now with um, the last part of the, pro um, of the poem, His Exaltation. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. He will give, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for those rebels. The first thing that stands out to me is that it was the Lord's good plan. It was his purpose. He was willingly crushed. And he willingly suffered those things. It was not done reluctantly. It was planned out of love. The Lord was pleased that humanity would be brought back to himself through the, Lord, for the, through the servant's suffering. And he was personally involved in this experience. He, the servant, would be raised from the dead and see the wonderful results of his immense sacrifice, which were many descendants. He was satisfied. The discouragement of being rejected is replaced with the satisfaction of seeing that the death was to produce many descendants. And I guarantee that what he just heard now added to his satisfaction. The scripture makes it plain that the servant's experience makes many righteous. He made it possible for me to be counted righteous. He was not killed for any wrongdoing, but he was righteous, and now because of this, it's possible for him to make many righteous. And when it says that um, the victorious soldier, he as the victorious soldier meant that he has the authority to divide the spoil among his associates thus proclaiming that this victorious soldier is assigned a priestly and prophetic role of intercession. His victory, his exaltation, is shared with those who fight and suffer with him. It would then appear that this song alludes to the fact that the cross and even the resurrection are not the end of the story. It's not the final word. But there's an ongoing battle to gather the fruit that was produced because of this servant, that one who defeated death. He wants so much to share this victory that he gained, but that is a discussion for another time. For now, what we want to recognize is that the purpose of Jesus' birth was so that he could defeat death for me. And this was done way back on Calvary. The blood that Jesus once shed for me way back on Calvary as my Redeemer upon a tree 
the blood that sets the prisoner free will never lose its power. It gives us access to God on high. From far off places it brings us nigh to precious blessings that will never die. It will never lose its power. And when with the blood-washed throng we sing in glory redemption song, we will pass this glorious truth along. It never lost its power. <laughs>